Section 44 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kyle Strand. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. Great Navigators of the 18th Century by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 4. The Two Americas. A. We have more than once had occasion to speak of expeditions for the survey of the coasts of America. We have told of the attempts of Fernando Cortés and the voyages and explorations of Drake, Cook, La Perouse, and Marchand. It will be well known to go back for a time, and with Florieu sum up the series of voyages along the western coast of America to the close of the 18th century. In 1537, Cortés, with Francisco de Ulloa, discovered the huge peninsula of California, and sailed over the greater part of the long and narrow strait now known as the Vermilion Sea. He was succeeded by Vázquez Coronado and Francisco Alarcón, who, the former by sea and the latter by land, devoted themselves to seeking the channel which was erroneously supposed to connect the Atlantic and Pacific. They did not, however, penetrate beyond 36 degrees north latitude. Two years later, in 1542, the Portuguese Rodrigo de Cabrillo reached 44 degrees north latitude, where the intense cold, sickness, want of provisions, and the bad state of his vessel compelled him to turn back. He made no actual discovery, but he ascertained that from Port Natividad to the furthest point reached by him, the coastline was unbroken the channel of communication seemed to recede before all explorers. The little success met with appears to have discouraged the Spaniards, for at this time they retired from the ranks of the explorers. It was an Englishman, Drake, who, after having sailed along the western coast as far as the Straits of Magellan and devastated the Spanish possessions, reached the 48th degree, explored the whole coast, and, returning the same way, gave to the vast districts included within ten degrees the name of new albion next came in fifteen ninety two the great fabulous voyage of juan de fuca who claimed to have found the long-sought strait of anian when he had but found the channel dividing vancouver's island from the mainland in sixteen o two viscaino laid the foundations of port monterey in california and forty years later took place that much-contested voyage of Admiral de Fuente, or Gifonche, according as one reckons him a Spaniard or a Portuguese, which had been the text of so many learned discussions and ingenious suppositions. To him we owe the discovery of the archipelago of St. Lazarus above Vancouver's island, but all that he says about the lakes and large towns he claims to have visited must be relegated to the realms of romance, as well as his assertion that he discovered a communication between the two oceans. In the 18th century, the assertions of travelers were no longer blindly accepted. They were examined and sifted, those parts only being believed which accorded with the well-authenticated accounts of others. Boache, Delise, and above all, Florieu inaugurated the prolific literature of historical criticism, and we have every reason to be grateful to them. The Russians, as we know, had greatly extended the field of their knowledge, and there was every reason to suppose that their hunters and Cossacks would soon reach America if, 
as was then believed, the two continents were connected in the north, but from such unprofessional travelers no trustworthy scientific details could be expected. A few years before his death, the Emperor Peter I drew up with his own hands a plan of an expedition, with instructions to its members, which he had long had in view, for ascertaining whether Asia and America are united or separated by a strait. The arsenal and forts of Kamchatka, being unable to supply the necessary men, stores, etc., captains, sailors, equipment, and provisions, had to be imported from Europe. Vitus Bering, a Dane, and Alex Shirikow, a Russian, who had both given many a proof of skill and knowledge, were appointed to the command of the expedition, which consisted of two vessels built at Kamchatka. They were not ready to put to sea until July 20, 1720. Steering northeast along the coast of Asia, of which he never for a moment lost sight, Bering discovered, on the 15th August and 67th degree, 18 minute north latitude, a cape beyond which the coast stretched away westward. In this first voyage, Bering did not apparently see the coast of America, though he probably passed through the strait to which posterity has given his name. The fabulous Strait of Anian gave place to Bering Straits. A second voyage made by the same explorers the following year was without results. Not until June 4, 1741, were Bering and Chirikau in a position to start again. This time they meant to bear to the east after reaching 50 degrees north latitude, till they should come to the coast of America. But the two vessels were separated in a gale of wind on the 28th August, and were unable to find each other again throughout the trip. On the 18th July, Bering discerned the American continent in 58 degrees 28 minutes north latitude, and the succeeding days were devoted to the survey of the vast bay between Cape St. Elias and St. Hermogenes. Bering spent the whole of August in sailing about the islands known as the Shumagin Archipelago off the peninsula of Alaska, and after a struggle lasting until the 24th September, with contrary winds, he sighted the most southerly cape of the peninsula and discovered part of the Aleutian group. Exhausted by long illness, however, the explorer was now no longer able to direct the course of his vessel, and could not prevent her from running aground on the little island bearing his name. There, on the 8th December, 1741, this brave man and skilful explorer perished miserably. The remnant of his crew, who survived the fatigues and privations of winter in this desolate spot, succeeded in making a large sloop of the remains of the vessel in which they returned to Kamchatka. Meanwhile, Shiriko, after waiting for his superior officer until the 25th June, made land between 55 degrees 56 minutes north latitude, where he lost two boats with their crews, without being able to find out what had become of them. Unable after this catastrophe to open communication with the natives, he went back to Kamchatka. The way was now open, and adventurers, merchants, and naval officers eagerly rushed in, directing their efforts carefully to the Aleutian Islands and the peninsula of Alaska. The expeditions sent out by the English, and the progress made by the Russians had, however, aroused the jealousy and anxiety of the Spanish, who feared lest the rivals should establish themselves in a country nominally belonging to Spain, though she owned not a single colony in it. The Viceroy of Mexico now remembered the discovery of an excellent port by Vizcaino, and resolved to found a presidio there. 
two expeditions started simultaneously, the one by land under Don Gaspar de Partola, the other by sea, consisting of two packets, the San Carlos and San Antonio, and after a year's search found again the harbor of Monterrey, alluded to by Biscaino. After this expedition, the Spanish continued the exploration of the Californian coast. The most celebrated voyages were those of Don Juan de Ayala and of La Bodega, which took place in 1775 and resulted in the discovery of Cape Engano and Guadalupe Bay. Next to these ranked the expeditions of Arteaga and Maurel. We have already related what was done by Cook, La Perouse, and Marchand, so we can pass on to say a few words of the expeditions of Vancouver. This officer, who had accompanied Cook on his second and third voyage, was naturally appointed to the command of the expedition sent out by the English government with a view to settling the disputes with the Spanish government as to Nootka Sound. George Vancouver was commissioned to obtain from the Spanish authorities the formal cession of this great harbor, of such vast importance to the fur trade. He was then to survey the whole of the northwest coast from 30 degrees north latitude to Cook's River in 61 degrees north latitude. Lastly, he was to give special attention to the Straits of De Fuca and the bay explored in 1749 by the Washington. The two vessels, the Discovery of 340 tons and the Chatham of 135, the latter under the command of Captain Broughton, left Falmouth on the 1st of April, 1791. After touching at Tenerife, Simon Bay, and the Cape of Good Hope, Vancouver steered southwards, sighted St. Paul's Island, and sailed towards New Holland, between the routes taken by Dampier and Marion, and through latitudes which had not yet been traversed. On the 27th September was sighted part of the coast of New Holland, ending in abrupt and precipitous cliffs, to which the name of Cape Chatham was given. As many of his crew were down with dysentery, Vancouver decided to anchor in the first harbor he came to, to get water, wood, and above all provisions, of which he stood sorely in need. Port George III was the first reached, where ducks, curlews, swans, fish, and oysters abounded, but no communication could be opened with the natives, although a recently abandoned village of some twenty huts was seen. We need not follow Vancouver in his cruise along the southwest coast of Holland, as we shall learn nothing new from it. On the 28th November, Van Diemen's Land was doubled, and on the 2nd December, the coast of New Zealand was reached and anchor cast by the two vessels in Dusky Bay. Here, Vancouver completed the survey left unfinished by Cook. A gale soon separated the discovery from the Chatham, which was found again in Matavai Bay, Tahiti. During the voyage there from Dusky Bay, Vancouver discovered some rocky islands, which he called the Snares, and a large island named Opara, whilst Capstan Broughton had discovered Chatham Island on the east of New Zealand. The incidents of the stay at Tahiti resembled those of Cook's story too closely for repetition. On the 24th January, the two vessels started for the Sandwich Islands and stopped for a short time off Awihi, Wauhu, and Ottawa. Since the murder of Cook, many changes had taken place in this archipelago. English and American vessels now sometimes visited it to take whales or trade in furs, and their captains had given the natives a taste for brandy and firearms. Quarrels between the petty chiefs had become more frequent, the most complete anarchy prevailed everywhere, and the number of inhabitants was already greatly diminished. 
On the 17th March, 1792, Vancouver left the Sandwich Islands and steered for America, of which he soon sighted the part called by Drake New Albion. Here he almost immediately met Captain Gray, who was supposed to have penetrated in the Washington into De Fuca Strait and discovered a vast sea. Gray at once disavowed the discoveries with which he was so generously credited, explaining that he had only sailed fifty miles up the strait, which runs from east to west till it reaches a spot where, according to some natives, it veers to the north and disappears. Vancouver, in his turn, entered De Fuca Strait and recognized Discovery Port, Admiralty Entry, Birch Bay, Desolation Sound, Johnson Strait, and Broughton Archipelago. Before reaching the northern extremity of this long arm of the sea, he met two small Spanish vessels under the command of Quadra. The two captains compared notes and gave their names to the chief island of the large group known collectively as New Georgia. Vancouver visited Nootka Sound and the Columbia River, whence he sailed to San Francisco, off which he anchored. It will be understood that it is impossible to follow the details of the minute survey of the vast stretch of coast between Cape Mendocino and Port Conclusion, in the northern latitude 56 degrees 37 minutes, which required no less than three successive trips. Now, says the great navigator, that we have achieved the chief aim of the king in ordering this voyage, I flatter myself that our very detailed survey of the northwest coast of America will dispel all doubts and do away with all erroneous opinions as to a northwest passage. Surely no one will now believe in there being a communication between the North Pacific and the interior of the American continent in the part traversed by us. Leaving Nootka to survey the coast of South America before returning to Europe, Vancouver touched at the small Coconut Island, which, as we have already observed, little deserves its name, cast anchor off Valparaiso, doubled Cape Horn, took in water at St. Helena, and re-entered the Thames on the 12th September, 1795. The fatigue incidental to this long expedition had so undermined the health of the explorer that he died in May 1798, leaving the account of his voyage to be finished by his brother. Throughout the arduous survey, occupying four years of 900 miles of coast, the Discovery and Chatham lost but two men. It will be seen from this how apt a pupil of Cook the great navigator was, and we do not know whether most to admire in Vancouver his care for his sailors and humanity to the natives, or the wonderful nautical skill he displayed in this dangerous cruise. While explorers thus succeeded each other on the western coast of America, colonists were not idle inland. Already established on the borders of the Atlantic, where a series of states had been founded from Florida to Canada, the white men were now rapidly forcing their way westwards. Trappers and coureurs de bois, as the French hunters were called, had discovered vast tracts of land suitable for cultivation, and many English squatters had already taken root, not, however, without numerous conflicts with the original owners of the soil, whom they daily tried to drive into the interior. Emigrants were soon attracted in large numbers by the fertility of a virgin soil and the more liberal constitution of the various states. Their number increased to such an extent that at the end of the 17th century the heirs of Lord Baltimore established the produce of the sale of their lands at 3,000 pounds, and in the middle of the following century, 1750, the successors of William Penn also made a profit ten times as great as the original price of their property. 
Yet emigration was even then not sufficiently rapid, and convicts were introduced. Maryland numbered 1981 and 1750. Many scandalous abuses also resulted from the compulsory signing by newcomers of agreements they did not understand. Although the lands bought of the Indians were far from being all occupied, the English colonists continued to push their way inland at the risk of encounters with the legitimate owners of the soil. In the north, the Hudson's Bay Company, holding a monopoly of the fur trade, were always on the lookout for new hunting grounds, for those originally explored were soon exhausted. Their trappers made their way into western wilds and gained valuable information from the Indians whom they pressed into their service and taught to get drunk. By this means, the existence of a river flowing northwards passed some copper mines from which some natives brought fine specimens to Fort Prince of Wales was ascertained. The company at once, i.e. in 1769, decided to send out an expedition to the command of which they appointed Samuel Hearn. For a journey to the Arctic regions, where provisions are difficult to obtain and the cold is intense, a few well-seasoned men are required who can endure the fatigue of an arduous march over snow and bear up against hunger. Hearn took with him only two whites and a few Indians on whom he could depend. In spite of the great skill of the guides who knew the country and were familiar with the habits of the game it contained, provisions soon failed. Two hundred miles from Fort Prince of Wales, the Indians abandoned Hearn and his two companions, who were obliged to retrace their steps. The chief of the expedition, however, was a rough sailor, accustomed to privations, so he was not discouraged. If he had failed the first time, there was no reason why a second attempt should not succeed. In March 1770, Hearn started again to try and cross the unknown districts. This time he was alone with five Indians, for he had noticed the inability of the whites to endure fatigue excited the contempt of the natives. He had penetrated five hundred miles when the severity of the weather compelled him to wait for a less severe temperature. He had had a terrible experience, at one time to have, indeed, more game than can be eaten, but more often to have no food whatever, and be compelled for a week at a time to gnaw old leather, pick bones which had been thrown aside, or to seek often in vain for a few berries on the trees, and lastly to endure fearful cold, such is the life of an explorer in these arctic regions. Hearn started once more in April, wandered about the woods until August, and had arranged to spend the winter with an Indian tribe which had received him well, when an accident which deprived him of his quadrant compelled him to continue his journey. Privations, miseries, and disappointments had not quenched the ardor of Hearn's indomitable spirit. He started again on the 7th December, and penetrating westwards below the 60th parallel north latitude, he came to a river. Here he built a canoe, and went in it down the stream, which flowed into an innumerable series of large and small lakes. Finally, on the 13th July, 1771, he reached the Coppermine River. The Indians with him now declared that they had been for some weeks in the country of the Esquimaux, and that they meant to massacre all they should meet of that hated race. An encounter very soon took place. Coming, says Hearn, upon a party of Esquimaux asleep in their tents, the Indians fell upon them suddenly, and I was compelled to witness the massacre of the poor creatures. Of twenty individuals, not one escaped the sanguinary rage of the Indians, 
and they put to death with indescribable tortures an old woman who had in the first instance eluded them. After this horrible carnage, says Hearn, we sat down on the grass and made a good dinner off fresh salmon. Here the river widened considerably. Had Hearn arrived at its mouth, the water was still quite sweet. There were, however, signs of a tide on the shores, and a number of seals were disporting themselves in the water. A quantity of whale blubber was found in the tents of the Esquimaux. Everything, in fact, combined to prove that the sea was near. Hearn seized his telescope and saw stretching before him a huge sheet of water dotted with islands. There was no longer any doubt. It was the sea. On the 30th, June, Hearn got back to English posts after an absence of no less than a year and five months. End of section 44 Recording by Kyle Strand, Washington.